This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to another episode of the District Podcast from The Spectator World. I'm Matt McDonald. Joining me today, we have Emma Jo Morris, who is currently politics editor at Breitbart News. Previously was the deputy politics editor at the New York Post, and she's written the diary for the January 2023 edition of The Spectator World, which should be hitting shelves in Barnes & Noble and Books A Million in the next week or so. Emma Jo was the first journalist to report stories emerging from Hunter Biden's recovered laptop which was subsequently suppressed by Twitter and Facebook. Hello, Emma Jo. Hey, thank you for having me. The way you say Breitbart is beautiful. Breitbart. It's meant to have T's in it, right? I think. (laughs) It's just anything you say in that accent has a certain eloquence that a Canadian just can't capture. Oh, stop it. Right. We are here to discuss the subject of your diary and also, you know, the, the kind of emerging news around your story of two plus years ago now obviously there's been a lot that has emerged from within twitter since elon musk's taking over of of that organization and then release of internal documents regarding the decision making process inside twitter as an organization and its work with government security uh forces and the like my sense of, of this story is fairly limited because obviously one of elon musk's conditions of releasing this information to journalists is that the journalists that he re- he's chosen to release it to have to tweet it out in a very long Twitter thread, which as a format is not something that I'm particularly used to reading. So give us, our, our listeners, kind of a an overview of the, the biggest takeaways from the Twitter files as, as they are so far and what you think the most kind of shocking things to emerge from that organization's internal decisions have been. Yeah, um, well, it's funny because I was rereading the diary this morning when it published and I was like, wow, this is outdated now. And I only wrote it a couple of weeks ago. But the way that this news cycle is moving is so crazy on just this particular story. I think it's one of the most sentient, breathing, living stories in our media right now. And it's just nonstop. So the Twitter files obviously are the latest big development in it. And I think Twitter files number seven, which was published on on Monday, the 19th of December, was the biggest development that we've had. And that really showed how the FBI and had, had basically completely co-opted Twitter and that the censorship that went on was obviously of Twitter's doing, but was really guided and run by the FBI. And that was done externally and also internally. We learned that the FBI, this was through the Twitter files and actually through reporting by John Levine at the Post, the FBI had up to 80 agents that were former agents, let's say, former, quote unquote, that were working at Twitter, some of whom in extremely high level positions at Twitter. For instance, Jim Baker, who was deputy counsel at Twitter, advising Twitter on how to interact with the FBI. And and Jim Baker obviously was from the FBI. He's a senior, former senior member of the FBI. 
He was um, at the center of the Russia collusion hoax, very close with Jim Comey. And now you see him reappearing in this narrative. And he is the one telling Yoel Roth, the head of trust and safety at Twitter, to interact with the FBI. He's coordinating meetings with the FBI. He's all over the censorship. And he himself is FBI. So this stuff is really insidious. And basically, yeah, what we learned was that Twitter was co-opted by the FBI and that the censorship of the laptop from hell was in essence an op by the FBI and, and also the ODNI, um, multiple multiple groups within the security state kind of larger apparatus. So um, I guess the big takeaway from that is kind of that, you know, the government doesn't have the right to censor speech, but what it's done instead is co-opted allegedly private company and laundered that role through the company. And, you know, the way that they did it too is so dirty because they, they said that it was Russian disinformation. They knew that it was not Russian disinformation. And the way that they knew, we know that they knew is because I published a subpoena, a federal subpoena in my original story on the Laptop from Hell series that showed that the FBI was in possession of the exact same hard drive that I was reporting off of almost a year before I had it. So they knew exactly what I had. And, and they, they saw that subpoena that I published on October 14th, 2020. And instead of, well, I mean, whatever, instead of backing off, that's like, that's talking about them as if they're sincere and, and being honest, you know, basically what they, with all that information is they lied to Twitter, they lied to the American public and said that it was Russian disinformation or hacked. There was zero evidence of any of that. In fact, the evidence all pointed to the fact that the story that I was writing was legitimate and they called it that and disparaged the work. And the thing about Twitter is that it it has 300 million users. That's less than Facebook. That's one of the actually smaller platforms in social media. But the thing about Twitter is that it has users of outsized influence, um, especially in the press, which obviously the FBI knows. We all know that. That's the favored platform for uh, editors. That's kind of like the new newswire for editors. That's where you get your stories as well as your framing and your hot takes. And so in co-opting Twitter, they were able to really influence the press in a way that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise um, and, and on a mass scale really easily and with one move. So they call it Russian disinformation. That's broadcasted out as the official reason for censorship. Then all of a sudden, that's that's the mindset of all members of legacy media who are obviously all on Twitter. And then they use that as their justification for not covering the story. So this thing has really just metastasized into a scandal of historic proportions that I could have never have imagined. But uh, that's where we are. And that's where we, what we've learned this, just this week, you know, it's, this whole thing was kind of like an intelligence operation. So there's a, there's so much I can ask you uh, off, off your answer to my first question. I want to pick up on, let me be contrarian for a second and say, with regards to, you know, ex FBI officials working for Twitter and working for like big tech, like Silicon Valley companies, that's not necessarily that abnormal, right? Like it's, it will be fairly commonplace that let's say you work in the government, you work for the FBI or any other kind of major agency, and then you're looking to earn more money because government calories are, sat, are capped, and therefore taking a job in Silicon Valley is not, is not necessarily innately suspicious. But I think that there are moments in the, particularly the most recent, the seventh release as you, as you phrase it, which are you know, very hard to kind of be charitable and explain. 
was wondering if you could touch on, um, I believe it's the Aspen Institute and the Elvis Chan part of that thread, where it's, I believe it involves, again, Joel Roth, who's this Twitter's head of safety, and an exercise that he's doing at the Aspen Institute prior to the release of the laptop story, right? Yeah, so this speaks to the operation that was going on from the FBI. And I just want to address your first question just briefly. Um, So I agree with you for sure. Obviously, if I was a government employee and I had experience in security, I would want to go to Silicon Valley and use those skills and get much more money, obviously. Understandable. On an individual basis, I totally understand that. And there's nothing, I guess, technically wrong with it on an individual basis. But when you have what we see here, which is hordes of people from the security state moving over to Silicon Valley altogether, it creates a culture and, and it brings... Like, you know, Matt Taibbi, who's one of the journalists who had the, some of the Twitter files, and he wrote in one of his threads that he called it a, a, a culture of a one big happy family. And that is where it gets really dangerous, because obviously one person from the FBI or two people or three people or even five going to Silicon Valley and being scattered around Silicon Valley isn't a big deal. But when you have them in the numbers that we're seeing, it creates almost like a merging of two entities that don't work together and are totally not okay to work together um, within the confines of the First Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, which is the security state and Twitter or a social media company like merging as friends. You can't have that because social media companies regulate or just by their nature regulate and and disseminate information and speech, right? And then you also have DMs. So I could write, technically, I could have done something, let's say, let's say I uh, was playing games on my taxes, and I DM you my friend, Matt. And I'm like, I just got this gift from my boss. And it's a great gift. And then I don't, and then I don't claim it. That via, and then the feds see that, that violates my Fifth Amendment right. So, you know, there are certain responsibilities that uh, these platforms have in, in making sure that there is a clear and obvious separation between them and the government. Otherwise, they're no longer what they portray themselves to be. And if they aren't going to do that, then they have to have some sort of item in their terms of service, let's say, that says, like, you know, law enforcement has total and complete access to all the information on this platform which is not there. And that's where it becomes sketchy, is that this was all going on under a shroud. And then we find out because Elon Musk bought Twitter that, oh, actually, Twitter is really kind of an extension of the federal government in the amount of people that it has working there and in the way that it interacts with the federal government in such an in such a kind of close and, and like way of camaraderie. It's like weird and and uh, doesn't belong together. It's, it's like incestuous. Didn't Tybee also, I think it was in the Tybee release, but he pointed out like there was a ex-FBI Slack channel within the Twitter organization. They all kind of colloquially referred to as, as like boo alum, like bureau of information yes. alum. Exactly. So like they're all, it's like a fraternity and, and there's something really, like I said, like I don't, it's obviously not illegal. You know, you can do it. I understand why they do it. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it good. Doesn't make it in the interest of the users. Um, Doesn't make it in the spirit of, you know, the First Amendment. Talk to me about Elvis Chan and the Aspen Institute. And I think it was September 2020, right? 
Right. Okay. So in yeah, exactly. So September 2020, this is just a, a month before we're going to publish. And keep in mind, the FBI has now had the laptop from hell in its possession for uh, about nine months. Um, they got it in December of 2019. So they planned this session at the Aspen Institute, which again, so, okay. So Twitter files, just to set this up, Twitter files, tranche seven, explains how Yol Roth was essentially groomed and like the journalists use the word primed. He was primed to be controlled by the FBI essentially. And then they did multiple things in that process to set him up to be ready on a hair trigger to censor whatever was coming about Hunter. And this was part of that process. So they bring him to the Aspen Institute and they go through this like drill kind of thing of, of setting up in, in, spectacular detail (laughs) of what he's looking for and what to do when he sees it. And, and that was just one piece. I mean, in another instance, they got him top secret security clearance, a temporary top secret security clearance (laughs) in order to be able to work more seamlessly with Twitter and be able to work more seamlessly with the people at Twitter who weren't already from the FBI and had that clearance already. (laughs) So It was all like that. The Aspen Institute incident was basically he got literally like a bullet notes spreadsheet of exactly what he's looking for and exactly how to react. And it was like a tutoring session or a crash course in what they want him to do. But it was framed as this is just a hypothetical situation of how to keep the country safe. And and it obviously wasn't hypothetical at all. Keep in mind, at this time, the FBI is monitoring Rudy Giuliani under very sketchy pretenses. They claimed, Miranda Devine published this in the New York Post. They claimed that they were uh, monitoring him. They were surveilling him for something to do with foreign registration, that foreign agent registration for his lobbying or whatever. Yeah, Yes, and they start to put him under surveillance. This is at the same time, he was the central source, obviously, as we now all know, and I published this in my original story. This wasn't a secret. He was the original source of the laptop and he shared it with Steve Bannon. And then Steve Bannon was the one who called me. But I got all of that. Like I went to Rudy's apartment to get the laptop, to get the hard drive. From Bob Costello, right? I think. Yeah. Well, so right. So I walk into Rudy's apartment and Bob Costello's son is there. And he was the one, he was like their super secret tech guy (laughs) who was making the coffee for me and he he was there and Steve Bannon was there and anyway yeah so he is the central character of this whole thing and they are watching him and listening to his correspondences so they're listening to his communication with me obviously at this point we were either in touch or about to be in touch and and at the same time they are basically they're practicing with Yoel Roth for when I publish. I don't know how you explain that away. I really don't know how, there is no way to explain it away. I mean, it's, it's, there's no way to explain it away. And, you know, I try because, you know, you want to really have like, you know, you don't want to go conspiracy brain when you're dealing with this stuff. But as much as I try to look at it from every angle and, and put myself in, in, you know, all the various characters positions, I can't imagine how there is no, like, this is all on the same topic. The Bureau would have had everybody working on this topic aware of all the different elements of it. 
how there's no way to explain it away. They knew that this was coming out of the New York Post and they were getting Twitter ready to shut it down and and call it all sorts it, it of would, It would be an enormous coincidence if, you know, the team who are, who have got the laptop nine months before you have and the team who are speaking to Elvis Jan somehow both stumble upon Hunter Biden as like the likeliest kind of target of a Russian disinformation campaign, right? Like it's impossible. <laughs> well, I also, I mean, one of the things is we are in this situation where because Elon Musk is now in, char- in charge of Twitter, though, you know, he's going to be the owner, but maybe not the CEO for much longer and is releasing all this information. We are now getting a, a side of the story that we didn't previously have. And I suppose... One of the questions which we probably will not have an answer for at least for another 40 years is is what the was going on internally at the FBI regarding this story in terms of what they when they got the laptop, what they did with it. I mean, I don't know that. I don't I mean, you most of us don't know and probably will never know what their process was, what, like whether they were just didn't think it was that big a deal, did, whether they looked at it, how much they looked at it how much they knew what the actual contents was and therefore how much people within the organization we're in a position to say, oh, maybe there's some misinformation slotted in here. One thing we do know, though, from the release is that the I believe there was a there was that big long list of intelligence officials who said this has all this bears all the hallmarks of a, a Russian disinformation campaign. And none of them knew anything. Right. And they said that in the letter. That was in like yeah. paragraph 15 of that political article that's now notorious. That they were like, well, we haven't seen it, and we don't know that this is true, but it looks like it. It, it bears the signs of, right? Wasn't that the expression? I think. <laughs> yeah, well, but so Matt, like the thing though that is important to note in this conversation is that December 2019, the FBI gets the laptop from hell. Why did they get it? This computer repair shop guy calls them and says, "I have Hunter Biden's computer." And I've been transferring over the material to a new hard drive because it's broken. And the re- and so he ha- so the laptop that Hunter brought in was water damaged, so it kept shutting down. So he had to basically transfer over the contents of the hard drive in chunks in between, like when it would shut down. And so because he was doing that, he was seeing what was on it because he had to keep track of where he was in the transfer. And you sign the- you sign away the right to do that to the computer shop when you give them the computer to do that. That's one of the important things as well. Yeah. Well, you obviously let him, you know, do the job as it needs to be done. And and then if you don't pick it up slash pay within 90 days of the job being completed, you've, you've abandoned your, your stuff. So that was what he was going off of. And, and that, you know, after the 90 days was when he calls the FBI. But the reason why he calls them is because he says, there's all this stuff about business in all these countries and it freaks me out to be in possession of this. So he told them why he was calling. They come and get it. This is December 2019. In January of 2020, President Trump at the time gets impeached. Why? Because he made the phone call to the Ukrainian president to say, hey, Hunter Biden is super corrupt. You know, the corruption is happening in your country. You need to investigate that. And um, and so the FBI knew that it had a piece of evidence for the impeachment trial that was going on literally six weeks later. Um, and so, again, you have to really, really stretch yourself to not go a little batty when you're thinking about this, because 
you know you have evidence for a, an immediately important pressing matter that has cultivated the in, that has sorry captured the interest of the world which is the impeachment of the US president and did that get lost in the mailroom <laughs> like that was actually what had prompted John Paul MacIsaac who has now been revealed as the computer repair shop owner to call Rudy because he's watching the impeachment trial and waiting for his evidence to be a part of it and he thinks he's going to play some sort of part in like American history you know and it never shows up And then he starts thinking, you know, he goes down this rabbit hole that we're in right now, which is, is the FBI crooked? Again, it's, it's too many, it's too many coincidences or, or extreme incompetence that is, is so extreme that it's very, it becomes improbable happening all at once that has led us to like, that has culminated in this like terrible mess. (laughs) At the conclusion of your diary on this topic, you say, well, you're talking about how obviously the House is about to change hands from uh, Democrat to Republican. And you hope that, you know, various committees start to actually look into this story and the security state and the action around it to basically ensure that, it, that you know, the, I mean, I presume you mean the suppression, the potential influence peddling, and that none of, none of that happens and again is unable to kind of impact American politics. What form do you kind of expect that to do? Can you imagine that taking? Like, which committees can you can you envision kind of acting on that? And then I've got a follow-up, which is kind of a bit of a problem question, which is obviously the other big story this week has been the final presenting of the January 6th committee's findings on their investigation into that. And obviously that was a Democrat-led, you know, committee consisting of seven Congress people who are Democrats and two who are Republicans who don't like Donald Trump. And therefore, if you're on the right and you are sympathetic to, you know, um, maybe if you're more sympathetic to Trump, you say, well, they've got a foregone conclusion in mind as far as where the evidence is going to lead. And and therefore, that's not going to be the best way to conduct that committee. Do you think there's like, is there scope for a bipartisan committee on this so that every American can have faith in it? Or uh, what do you like, what do you think it would look like? First part of your question actually reminds me of, sorry, what I was getting to in the last question. And I just kind of went out on a bit of a tangent, but what I was about to say on the last, uh, to answer your last question that dovetails with the answer to this question is that the way that we can find out what happened in the FBI with all of these crazy coincidences is through subpoena power, right, of, of Congress. So I think that unless it comes out in like 60 years, JFK file style, you know, before that, we could probably get some subpoenas and that would probably illuminate what's going on a little better. But so, right. So Congress is definitely going to be investigating this. Obviously, they've made this kind of a centerpiece of a lot of their campaigns and a lot of their pitch to the American people about why they deserve to win. And uh, yeah, so I think that there is going to be obviously the oversight committee looking at, at Joe Biden personally and his personal financial interest in other countries and in countries that don't have aligned interests with the United States, which obviously would create a problem for American foreign policy making, which is the point of the reporting, right? So you're going to have James Comer as the head of the oversight committee looking into that and and personal, you know, problems with Joe Biden now in his role as president, you know, in, in light of these business deals. Um, then you're going to have the Judiciary Committee led by probably Jim Jordan, which will be looking into the uh, role of the intelligence community, role of the FBI, role of the DOJ, in uh, the suppression of the laptop from hell reporting 
um, which is a separate issue from the Biden corruption. Obviously, this is a new chapter of corruption that happened um, when we reported in 2020. So you're going to have, I think Comer and Jordan are going to be the main characters um, of these investigations. And then I think Honestly, um, I've heard chatter. Um, nobody's coming out to say this right now, but I've heard chatter that um, that there's going to probably be some sort of select committee that's formed just because this has so, like it has so many different threads to pull that I, I don't know that just two committees is going to be enough, um, especially like as you start digging, you know, we're just seeing this like, you know, we get a new thing, let's say the Twitter files, and it opens up this huge new area of investigation um, for, for the story and the scandal. So I think that that's probably going to be what happens in Congress, too. And they'll probably form maybe one or two even select committees on just looking at various um, angles of corruption between between the Biden family and then the whole reporting of the Biden family corruption. Um, and and the part that I think that we can get, like the thing that we can, I think we can get out of this, and this is an answer to your second question of how do you kind of bring in the people who are skeptical or who don't care or who are not getting it in the media? Um, and how do you make this sort of bipartisan or at least have a bipartisan kind of outcome? And I think that I've thought about this and I think that, um, I think it would be a mistake for Republicans to get overzealous and for Republicans to get too bloodthirsty. You know, this isn't about humiliating the Biden family, or at least it shouldn't be. And I sometimes see talk about that. And I don't think that that's the way. And I don't think that that's the healthiest thing and the most productive thing for the country, which obviously ought to be at the top of all of our minds. You know, I see the I see the impulse, you know, especially if you're a partisan. I see the impulse to just use this as a political bludgeon and to really damage the Biden family, you know, especially going into the presidential election. But I think that the way to do this is there is to look at the solutions of which there are many that are really reasonable and are really um, palatable for for all kinds of people. You know, and and I have a few at the top of my head that I think that if you're a Biden voter or you're a progressive, I mean, definitely, actually, if you're a progressive, but if you're a Biden voter, let's say, and a, and a former Clinton voter, that you could look at and say, okay, this is a sensible policy outcome from all of this. You know, one that comes to mind is we saw in the Twitter files and and through the way the, the, this whole thing has gone down, that there is way too uh, close and incestuous of a relationship between the security state and communications platforms. So President Trump pro- um, produced this idea and, and put it out to his credit the, uh, last week, where he said, let's make a law that if you work in the security apparatus, you know, and you work in the intelligence community, you have to have a seven-year cool-down period between the time that you leave your job in the government and the time that you join a social media company. Um, because this will prevent you just jumping and still having all of your contacts and all of your friends and all of your connections and all of your clearances from the government to the private sector where people, where you're operating a platform where people are communicating either publicly or privately. I think that that's a very reasonable suggestion. I don't see that as, as kind of like mouth frothing, uh, overly partisan, um, un- unreasonable. I think that's fair. You know, you don't want spies working at social media companies. Yeah, I can see the downsides to it as well, though, right, which is that, therefore, you have no edge whatsoever at those uh, in the private sector. 
for like if you're seven if your information is going to be seven years out of date when you're going to work for say facebook on counterterrorism, having worked in the, in the intelligence community on counterterrorism, that doesn't equip the social media companies particularly well to act on counterterrorism, right and obviously that's a fairly extreme example but <laughs> well okay well i think that first of all you have to if you have if you have two competing and clashing interests let's say the interest of the sanctity of the First Amendment and the interest of the bureaucrats that work at the FBI and their career prospects, you have to prioritize, first yeah. of all. I think the interest of the First Amendment takes priority over Jim Baker's salary. But if I wanted to, just for the sake of conversation, talk about you know, not jipping these people who work at the government um, of, of you know, career growth, you know, these people can go work at contractors, they can go work at security firms. I mean, there's tons of tech security firms in Washington and and, in Virginia, especially ones that work with the DOD, that would beef up their resume enough to be able to go and get like, you know, the real gold gig, which is in Silicon Valley, and still keep a separation between their time and government. There's like government adjacent jobs that you can get that are kind of like hybrids between government jobs and private sector jobs that would circumvent that regulation and so everybody can still get paid i suppose if, if we want to take their their salary I, I, mean, I don't raise this because i care about these guys making money because obviously i don't but i do raise it because like I, presumably if you work at a big tech company one of the reasons why you're looking to get ex-government employees to work for you is because there is potentially a genuine national security reason to do so sure but so so you have you know yeah, like you have, I have a, a name actually that is at the tip of my tongue. I don't remember, but there's a few of these companies where they're they're like security contractors and they help you know secure the the systems of the DoD. They help secure the systems of the federal government and Congress that would provide that experience that maintains that experience. It doesn't keep your CV. You know, I worked in the FBI, took a break for seven years so that I could work here. You know, and you, and you still have those skills sharpened and and you know the social media companies can still benefit from that talent, which I agree is a fair point. But anyway, so so that's one policy. And then the second policy that I think is is something that is reasonable, that probably moderates and, and independents and Democrats could probably agree on with Republicans is that like, if you have a blood relationship or a marriage relationship, so if you're the son, the niece, the brother, the sister, or the husband or wife of somebody who has a role in the federal government, even let's say you can restrict it to an elected role in the federal government that you can't do business with. Like, let's say, let's make a list of countries you can't do business with. Let's keep it to the top five most corrupt countries in the world, let's say, or a country that is our clear and obvious adversary, (laughs) which would eliminate the Biden business prospects that make people nervous, like Ukraine, like China. (laughs) You know, so I think that that's probably something reasonable, you know, it's like, let's make a business ban you know, of people who have a, a, who share a home with, with members of elected office. No, no, no Nepo babies is what you're saying. No Nepo babies. No, no 10% for the big guy. And no, I got the job because my last name, you know, seems Mm -hmm. pretty fair. I think pretty reasonable. And I think that stuff like that, 
will be really the key to bringing on the people who are maybe skeptical of this story or skeptical of this narrative or think that it's some sort of political witch hunt. You know, there's been a lot of heated conversation around the Hunter Biden laptop. And I understand that if you're not an ideologue and you're just a regular person or you are an ideologue, maybe on the other side, and you think that this is all a long con by the Republican Party to destroy the Bidens, which it's not. And I can say from the as the person who saw these documents firsthand and saw the laptop from hell, which it truly is a laptop from hell. It's not a con. It's it's like really serious. It's really serious. China is like not like this is total. I mean, I think personally from seeing what's on that hard drive, that there's a lot of compromising material floating around that's not good for this country. And I think you can say that just as a patriot and not as a member of any sort of political party or ideology. But that aside, it's like, I think that the best thing that can come of this is just making sure that it doesn't happen again. You know, the Clintons started this like 20 years ago with renting American foreign policy and and, and selling American foreign policy decision-making. And it's really unhealthy and it makes people extremely angry and skeptical and resentful of their government, which is obviously not ideal. Um, and it's, advantage of the American taxpayer, which is definitely not ideal. So I think that there's shock and awe potential here, but I don't think that that's necessarily the move. If you have to prioritize, I think the move is definitely doing it in a way that is productive. And and that would be having something to show at the end of it to say, like, we're making sure now that the American taxpayer is protected, that, that we're trying to reduce the amount of corruption in a sincere way, and that uh, we're making sure that doing our best to make sure that this can't happen again. So the Democrats therefore have to like, unlike what Kevin McCarthy did with January 6th committee, they kind of have to put up serious people and take the committee assignment seriously, right? And basically try and treat it in an even handed way. Do you think that'll happen? Like, No, because no. obviously, <laughs> but despite that, let's say it's left to Republicans and some blue dog Democrats come up with something at the end to, to, to make them look bad for not participating. Again, it's like this is rife with opportunity for, for something good. You know, if they come out of this with, with two or three really sensible policy proposals and that, gets, and that gets broadcast to the American people and they come out on the side of them, then it's going to make everybody who, who was too stubborn or too political to participate look bad. So there's only room for good opportunity here. I, I think it's really fertile for that. And and I think that it's really fertile for bipartisanship at the end, at least at the end. And and I think that they should take advantage of it. They shouldn't go full January 6th where it's a star chamber. And then you come out with these things that are like, what? You know, and, and you've lost the person the second that you announce them because it's just so outrageous, which I think is what happened with January 6th thing. I mean, they made it into this into this highly produced kind of like, circus and then at the end of the circus the final act was like accusing trump of like treason because of his like incendiary twitter and it's like you know you want to stay reasonable because i think that there are actually a lot of reasonable people in this country still and i think that they expect at least i expect as i like to think of myself as reasonable (laughs) my psychiatric uh supervisor says otherwise but yeah. <laughs> you know but you know i think that there is opportunity for that is what I'm the, the conclusion of it is that they're recommending charges to the justice department who have their own investigation anyway and so you're kind of just like what was the point i mean anyway well, right and the charges that they chose that they came up with were like it was like 
what? You know, we were there and January 6th was terrible and, and, and it was really damaging and nobody's going to be a supporter of January 6th. At least nobody with on the reservation will, but the way it was dealt with made it like, okay. (laughs) Emma Jo, I could talk about this stuff with you for hours, but we're reaching the end of our time. I've got one final provocative question for you, which is your sense in those emails where Hunter Biden is saying 10% for the big guy. Do you think, A, he is saying that because he's gen- like Joe Biden is aware that money's being set aside for him as part of all these business deals? Or B, do you think that he's just saying that to get more money out of the agreements? And basically, it's kind of bluster to like, how, what do you think the Hunter, obviously, Hunter is the ultimate Nepo baby of the last 10 years. But what do you think the extent of like, Joe's relationship with his business dealings is? I don't know. And yeah. I don't want to be, you know, like the January 6th committee, um, yeah. pretending that I have some sort of insight into Joe Biden's mind or his decision-making process or his heart, you know, I guess. It's like, I don't know. And they're, you know, and we were very careful to word it this way at the New York Post. It's like, we don't have these details. And I think that that's why this investigation is important because we have information that looks really bad. And, and this has been a central criticism I've had of the Biden administration through all of this, which was like, you have to address it because we have these emails that look really bad and it could, you could look at them and fall on either side of that question. And they're both, they're both plausible possibilities, let's say of what that, but you have to talk about what it meant. You know, I use this, I use this comparison and I think it's apt. It's Im- imagine if you're married and you have an affair and your spouse catches you having an affair and you just never talk about it. And they know that you had the affair and you just never admit it and you never talk about it. And there's something really abusive about that because your spouse then begins to go crazy. And imagine if you had this affair, your spouse knows, and all of a sudden, every few months, they find a new trace, you know, this affair. And you just refuse to acknowledge it, even though you both know what happened. And and that's what's going on right now between the Biden administration and the American public. It's like we have, we know something went down. We know something went down. It's in writing. And it's been widely reported. And every few months, there's new information that comes to light about the fact that there is obvious corruption here. And we don't know the extent of it because the Biden administration just keeps literally just ignoring it. It's almost amazing the, the talent and this and how sustained they are in, in ignoring this huge elephant in the room. And and it's it it so we don't know. And and that's something that I think again, needs to come, I guess, from subpoena power if, if nobody's going to voluntarily come and talk about it. Because we have an email that says that Joe Biden was doing business or that appears to show that Joe Biden was doing business with the Chinese Communist Party. So I don't know how long you keep going ignoring that. And these questions are looming. I mean, they're looming in my mind, too. Was was 10 percent really going for the big guy? Was he leveraging them? Um, we know that that was basically the business practice and the MO by the by the Biden family was to just dangle Joe Biden's name in front of people and get more money out of them. I don't know. Um, you know, obviously there was some sort of 
there was some sort of service provided by Joe Biden himself. We know that because on the laptop, we see that in, for instance, in the Burisma uh, deal, they were leaking internal White House conversations about Ukraine and about Burisma to Burisma. Um, So that was obviously some sort of service rendered for his $80,000 a month salary on that board. But again, what is the extent of that? Was that the only time? Did Hunter arrange that with contacts inside the White House, you know, and circumvent Joe Biden in that? We don't know. And, And they refuse to talk about it. And it's almost like, obviously, this is unrealistic because it's so damning, but you just wish that they would just be real for like one second because we know what's going on. So it's like, just explain yourself. Um, dare I say, apologize. But, you know, obviously we'll never get that. You know, politics doesn't work like real relationships, um, you know, and and that's why the comparison doesn't really work in this case. But but it, it's, it's an extremely awkward and an extremely tense situation for the Biden administration vis-a-vis the American public. And it... it I don't see how it goes on not addressed because of questions like that, especially with China. Come on. Yeah. It's very festive of you to end with an extended affair analogy. Yes. So uh, (laughs) Emma Jo Morris, thank you very much. Uh, Merry Christmas and happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Thank you so much for having me on. (laughs) Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The District, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the American edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, please visit spectatorworld.com.